2: Welcome back to The Moon Underwater. I, John Robbins, am the landlord of this hallowed tavern. And with me is the regular, the lovely Robin Allender. And we are delighted to be joined by novelist Ian Rankin, or should I say Sir Ian Rankin? Do you? How do you stand on your Sir? In, what an incredible achievement, if indeed you see it as an achievement.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean... Uh... Funnily enough, I, I just moved office today, and um, the removals guys phoned me up and said, "Sir Ian, we're just outside." And I went, "Whoa, wait a minute! Um, I'm still Ian from the block, as <laughs> far as you're concerned, guys." Um, yeah, I've not I've not really used it yet. I've not been to Buckingham Palace yet to to get the the, the sword on the shoulder job. Um, and in fact, they've given me a date, and I can't make it. So uh, it's looking like it won't happen until next year. Um, but yeah, it is. I mean, as a crime writer, I was trying to think of Scottish writers who have similarly been knighted. And I got back to um, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, was one and Sir Compton Mackenzie, who did Whiskey Galore, was another one. And that was about it. So as far as writers from working class Fife are concerned, I think I'm number one in a field of one.
2: Did Sherlock Holmes play a big part in your early reading or is that something you've come to later is, is it sort of, is it, is it naive to assume that all crime writers sort of begin with, with Sherlock Holmes?
0: I mean, most do. Most crime writers become crime writers because they've been readers of crime fiction. And that will often include Agatha Christie and Conan Doyle and, and all, the, all the usual suspects. I didn't. I mean, I didn't read crime fiction until I started writing it. Um, I stumbled into crime fiction while trying to write the great Scottish novel, basically based on Jekyll and Hyde, trying to update the themes from Jekyll and Hyde, but putting them in contemporary Edinburgh. And it was only after I'd written the first Rebus novel that I started reading crime fiction seriously. Um, So, no, Conan, I mean, you know, yeah, Conan Doyle. I I didn't even really think of him as a Scottish writer um, until I stumbled across, A, the Conan Doyle pub in Edinburgh, uh, and B, a statue of Sherlock Holmes across from the Conan Doyle pub in Edinburgh, and thought all right and you can go on go online and and you can actually hear conan doyle um there's some audio exists of him speaking and he spoke with a very distinct scottish accent his whole life so um so yeah i'm in mean, good company good company
3: yeah what kind of stuff were you reading then uh, cuz i mean you've, you've mentioned uh, kind of a lot of the big american writers and people like Pynchon as well so what what were your kind of big influences when you did start writing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I studied American literature at university and I was sort of studying people like Thomas Pynchon and Joseph Heller, Catch-22, Wonkly Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey. I loved all those from school days onwards. Um, and I and got into Scottish literature eventually. I did my PhD on Muriel Spark, who wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, amongst other books, and one cracking crime novel, very short crime novel called The Driver's Seat. Which uh, you should you should look up. It'll take you a couple of hours to read it. Um, I went
2: on a bit of a Muriel Spark jag this year. Read um, a Far Cry from Kensington and The Bachelors. Oh right,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Interesting choices. The Bachelors is a good good sort of uh, London pub novel.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's one. That's one of our very earliest books as well, it was written in a... F- probably late 50s, early 60s. I thought she was great, actually. I thought she was a terrific writer. I only ever got to meet her once. Um, never managed to get her into the Oxford Bar, alas. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I met her like a twenty-minute, a 20-second 20 walk from the Oxford Bar. The, the Edinburgh Book Festival used to be on a site that was basically next to the Oxford Bar, and I used to drag writers in there all the time. Uh, I would just say to them, come and have a pint, come and have a pint. Like, Seamus Heaney, we would get into the Oxford Bar, and lots of American writers... Um, Tony Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain the, the chef and the, the writer I took him into the Oxford bar and he then wrote about it in one of his books and he said I've just been to my favourite bar in the whole world I'm not going to tell you where it is because you'll go and spoil it <laughs> uh, and that that was the Oxford bar That's amazing.
3: Muriel Spark as well we did um, Ballad of Peckham Rye on in the pub library on Moon Underwater which is another great one which has got some brilliant pubs there's a good pub crawl in it if I remember rightly.
2: some superb recommendations there but we do have the small matter of the moon underwater pub quiz Robin can you release us from the the silver and small screen (laughs) tenterhooks sure of course John So, question one about
3: pubs in TV and film was in the 2004 film Shaun of the Dead. It is suggested that we have a nice cold pint and wait for this all to blow over in which pub? So, Ian.
0: Uh, The the Winchester.
2: Nice. Sorry, John. (laughs) No, I didn't. No, I I had nothing for that. I I know that they use Don't Stop Me Now by Queen in that film. Yes, yep. But I don't know. um, I I didn't know what pub it was.
3: Yes, it's the Winchester Exteriors and Interiors were shot at the Duke of Albany pub in Newcross, London, which was sadly turned into a flats in 2008. There we go. So question two was The Feathers is a pub, which is often alluded to but never actually seen in which British sitcom, which first aired in 1998.
0: So Ian? I was going to say Only Fools and Horses.
3: Yeah, a bit later than that. John, what do, you, what do you
2: think? It's The Office. No, it's The Royal Family. Oh, uh, The Royal Family. I think it is also mentioned in The Office. The <laughs> Feathers. <laughs> but anyway. Don't does he say The Feathers?
3: The Gardeners. He mentions The Gardeners. Oh, God, you might be right. Okay, I should have been more specific. I'll give you half a point. Thanks. <laughs> um, 1981 film, American Werewolf in London, begins with two American backpackers seeking refuge in a pub on the Yorkshire Moors. What is the suitably bloody name of the pub, Ian?
0: Well, I was going to say something like the full moon. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember, the fi- I remember the film really well, and I remember the scene. I just don't remember that pub sign. Uh, the, the, the wolf, uh, the, 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 the lycanthrope, lic- the, the howling, <laughs> uh, the full moon.
3: These are really those are great, these are good guesses and all excellent pub names. But uh... No, go on. I have no idea. John, do you know? The big dead idiot. It's the slaughtered lamb. Uh, the slaughtered lamb, uh, which also, which was uh, interior scenes were filmed in the Black Swan in Surrey, and fe- the, that scene features a very young Rick male. which is, is it really uh, yeah yeah. Huh. It's an excellent film. Uh, question four was episode of which eighties sitcom features Madness performing House of Fun in a pub called the Kebab and Calculator? Ian, is it the Young Ones? Ian saying Young Ones, John. Uh, yeah, I was saying Young Ones too. It is The Young Ones, and that, of course, is a a Bristol, where a lot of the exteriors were were filmed in Bristol, and that's the Westbury Park Tavern, or as we knew it at the time, The Cock of the North, which is quite a weird name for a pub. But yeah, it's still a a nice pub. It's got a picture of um, The Young Ones inside it as well. And uh, the last question was, you might order a pint of numbers in the Two Brewers pub in which British sitcom, which first aired in 2014, which is one of my favourite TV programmes, Ian?
0: No idea.
2: John, God, I I I got nothing, man.
3: Do you want a clue? Yeah, go on then. Uh, Mac- Mackenzie Crook. <laughs> oh, the detectorists. Detectorists. Yes. Yeah. Never, never seen it. Never seen it. Oh wow. Oh, you've got a treat in store. Yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. I'm
0: yeah. too busy in the pub to watch any TV. <laughs> yeah. This is this is unfair.
3: Yeah. Oh, it's really good. It's very gentle, and the the pub scenes are always. It, you know, always make me want to go to the pub.
0: Well, there's a
2: very good DVD called Roll Out the Barrel, which is sort of a collection of documentaries about pubs from sort of 1940 to 1980, which is um, a wonderful slice of sort of British social history, which might which might, might wet your whistle. So, John, I think you won that with two and a half points. Well, I'm not going to take the half because I, I, I wasn't right on the dates by saying The Office. <laughs> But is there a feathers in the office? That yeah, them. I think I there be. is a feathers.
3: Is it is it uh, Finchy or something? No, mm. I think
2: I think Brent just sort of refers to it quite offhand. Okay, right, right. But right. But okay. I'm not 100 percent on that. Sure, this is good content. It's good. This is good content. Um, before we move on to your next choice, I just have to ask about Cracker because I'm such a huge <laughs> Cracker fan. Do you like Cracker? That's basically my question. <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> do you like I I, 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 I do like Cracker. Um, I'm a big fan of, of the, the writing uh, and uh, as well as the acting. Uh, Jimmy, uh, is it Jimmy McGovern? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it did take away Robbie Coltrane because the BBC for a while had the option on Rebus before it was ever filmed. Had BBC had the option and they were very keen to get Robbie Coltrane to play Rebus. Oh, wow. But well, that would have been He went so off good, and did Cracker yeah. instead and that was the end of that. Um... So yeah, so despite you know removing Robbie Coltrane from the wish list of of Rebuses, yeah, Cracker is fantastic.
2: Oh, Coltrane as Rebus would have been, but he couldn't have played both those roles, could he?
0: Yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, the same goes for. I mean, Ken Stock, who did eventually play Rebus. I mean, he'd played cops in um, Messiah and The Vice. Um, and uh, and he just segued very very smoothly into playing Rebus on screen. Um, and a lot of fans say when they read the books now, it's him they kind of see in their mind's eye as they read.
2: I drink too much. I smoke too much. I gamble too much. I am too much. <laughs> oh, just, just cracker.
0: Enough about your personal life, John. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, we move on to your two spirit choices. I can see. But the moon underwater has revealed a, a bottle of whiskey behind you, um, a couple of bottles of whiskey and some beautiful uh, display boxes there. Are you a big whiskey drinker? And what are your two spirits?
0: I am a big whiskey drinker, um, but I think I like whiskey more than it likes me, <laughs> uh, unless I stick to nothing but whiskey. If I drink wine and then whiskey or beer and then whiskey, the head the next day is phenomenal. If I drink nothing but whiskey, I'm okay. Um, I'm a huge fan of Highland Park, Mm. Um, not only because they gave us a lot of free whiskey to celebrate Rebus's 30th anniversary some years ago, uh, including a a 30th anniversary bottle that they did. and he also got me to, I went up to, for the tasting and before we bottled it and they got me to sign a barrel which is still sitting there, which is, is mine. It belongs to me. Wow. Um, and I don't have to pay any tax on it until it's bottled. So being a true Scot, it's going to sit in that barrel for some considerable time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Highland Park, 18-year-old. Um, I mean, it's very expensive, but I do like Highland Park, 18-year-old. Um, so yeah, that would be the whiskey, I think. I like a gin as well, and we now in Edinburgh have Edinburgh gin, um, and Edinburgh gin is is very delicious. So, you know, to be patriotic, I might have to include Edinburgh gin. Is that what we get? We get two different spirits. So you get I kind of a whiskey and a gin.
2: Yeah, and it, Edinburgh really does have not just gin, but it there's a. Really good Edinburgh rum. Oh, really? Called I think called Dark Dark Matters.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, I think I've vaguely heard of that. I've only just started drinking rum. I um I, I, I there's a holiday in St. Lucia in January and I was drinking St. Lucia rum. There's actually a bottle of it back here, um, Chairman's Reserve, which is the St. Lucia rum. And um my son got me a bottle of it for my birthday, which is sitting behind me in April. And I'm just sipping that. I I wouldn't have said I was a rum drinker until I started drinking it at source. And now I I do like it quite a lot. Uh, It seems to me like a kind of winter drink. You know, you want it sitting by a roaring fire uh, in a kind of warmed glass, a big balloon glass and then you get the full effect. Do you have water in your whiskey, or ice or, or neat? Um, I usually start off neat and then put a little bit of water in, just a dribble, a merest dribble of water, just to open it up. Especially with a malt, it opens up the flavours. If you're having a Laphroaig or a Lagavulin, one of the big, heavy, peaty Islay malts, you really need some water in it just to open it up, because otherwise it's like fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't work for all whiskeys. I mean, sometimes if you're having a really subtle... Um side whiskey, it doesn't, you know, adding water just makes it a bit weaker. It doesn't really open up the flavours, but it does definitely open up the flavours for a Talisker, a, a Laphroaig, a Lagavulin, a Cowlilla, all those big earthy, peaty, um seaweedy West Coast whiskies. I am a big fan.
2: I absolutely adore, and I know Robin's a fan of the little whiskey taps you get in Edinburgh pubs. I'm I'm assuming most Scottish pubs, but those little brass Taps either end of the bar, perhaps with a little porcelain jug next to them. That's so cool. <laughs> Makes me wish I could drink whiskey.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think listeners listeners are now going. Wait a minute, whiskey taps. You just pour the tap, and whiskey comes out. <laughs> no, what you're referring to is a water tap. It's a tap or, or on a the bar. Tap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A it's a tap on the bar that you can do, And it's beautiful. They're beautifully ornate and Victorian. And you turn it on and you get a little dribble of water in your whiskey. Mm. I mean, I was a big fan of the old-fashioned pubs where, and until recently, some of them still did it here, where um, you would get mixers were free. Really? So if you, went, if you went for any kind of spirit, if you went for a vodka or a, or a gin or something, there'd be bottles of lime juice, bottles of be iron brew, lemonade, you name it, just sitting on the bar and just helped yourself to a splash. And that's all died out now. I think for you know for profit reasons, um, uh, but and it, and it, they still don't charge you for the water, which is quite nice. Yeah. When You add a little bit of water to your whiskey, you still don't get charged for it. But you know with water prices the way they are, yeah, yeah, who knows?
3: What's that thing? I think it's in Knots and Crosses where you're talking about some
0: pubs being serving different measurements, like gills pubs, gills, gills, gills. It's um, it's a, a, a quarter-jill. You used to get these different sizes of, of, of measure of spirit, and a quarter-jill was a, was a, was a sizable one. So if you went into it, some bars went for quarter-jills, and some went for a lesser amount. So if you went into a pub and you looked at the wall sign and the wall sign said, we serve quarter jills, you'd go, yeah, beauty. Because <laughs> you'd be getting a much bigger helping of whiskey or gin or vodka than you would at a pub next door that was serving. My dad was a, was a grocer most of his life. And in fact, you know, I've just unpacked his, I haven't just moved um, offices. I've just unpacked his jill measure. And it's a little brass, like a little brass cup. Yeah. Or a, or a, a little brass goblet. Um, and it was stamped every year. It was checked and stamped to make sure that it held exactly a jill. How much was that then? Was that... It was, It was. I mean, what can I... A, a cup full. A cup full. Right. Would be a jill. Yeah, a pretty big portion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but we moved on then to, to centiliters and stuff. So now what you look for in an Edinburgh pub, top tip, Robin, yeah. is you look for the 35 mil, not the 25 mil. Right. Yeah, yeah. And some pubs still do a 35 mil, which is the equivalent of a quarter jill.
2: Nice. So an Imperial Jill is hundred and fifty millilitres.
0: Yeah, John, that's not off the top of your head, mate. You've just looked
2: it up on Google. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I looked it up in my mind. So a quarter jill would be what would a quarter what's a quarter of 150? Would be? About four,
0: 35,
2: 40. Yeah, yeah, sort of 37 and a half. Oh, that's a, that's a
0: nice slug of whiskey to have. Even nicer is when you just pour it freehand. Um, <laughs> of course. Which did a top tip. I don't know if it's still true or not, but when I first went to America I learned that, especially in places like New York and Chicago, they're so used at bars to people wanting lots and lots of ice in their drink that if you say I want a whiskey, no ice, they fill it up to the same level it would be filled up to if it was full of ice. So you could you could end up with basically a quarter bottle of whiskey in your glass for the same price.
3: Doug Stanhope does that really funny bit about the difference between pouring in the U.S. and in the U.K. Have you seen that, or it's like no. A free pour in the US, but then it's like a scientist comes out from behind the bar and pours you this tiny measurement in the UK yeah. kind of thing. It's just very funny.
2: I really struggled in New York because I was drinking a lot of rum at the time. But like you say, they I would ask for rum and coke and they would pour like half rum and then they'd go. And I, and I just wouldn't be able to drink it. It was so strong and it was about sort of six shots. But, you
0: know, nice problem to have. <laughs> And, until you wake up three days later in Singapore with a tattoo and a, a full beard. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so you, you said that you can't drink, uh, you can't drink and write. Can you write on a hangover? Oh,
0: yeah. Okay. <laughs> obviously. obviously. Talk, obvious. Talking from experience. Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> if I couldn't, I'd be in big trouble, I tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. And sometimes some scenes are, are better for it, I tell you, because you're a bit more um, introspective, shall we say. Uh, but yeah, a
2: little bit of the the sort of the shame and doubt and self loathing in your characters. There you go. <laughs> uh, we must now expand our minds. I mean, we're we're talking to one of the great writers of our era. But Robin, please put another tome into the Moon Underwater Pub Library. Mm.
3: Thanks, John. Yes, every week in The Moon Underwater, we add another book to the pub library. And this week it is an Ian Rankin book, uh, How Could We Not? And it's Black and Blue, which is, uh, I guess, was like your big kind of breakthrough book in a way, wasn't it? You're kind of the, the first kind of big seller kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't sell brilliantly, but it was the first book to get recognised. It won the Gold Dagger Award for the best crime novel published in the UK that year. And as a result of that, the books did take off. Yeah, so it was it was a big step for me.
3: Nice. And this this is I'm going to just read a small passage if that's okay and it's um it's a nice description of the Oxford bar. But I was wondering do you have any rough idea how many pubs Edinburgh pubs you have included in your in your novels or or and, and how many kind of or you know are there any ones that you haven't featured that you kind of want to feature or something like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's Rebus, right? And there's pubs that Rebus would not go into that I might go into. So we've got to make sure that it's his taste in bars, which means a lot of pubs have to be ruled out. Um... Uh, so there's, he, there's probably been at least a dozen mentioned. One was mentioned, um, Kay's Bar was mentioned because the guy paid a charity ah. uh, for Rebus to go there instead of the Oxford Bar in one book. <laughs> the owner the owner of the Kay's, of Kay's Bar paid for Rebus to go there. Has Rebus ever been to the Dagda? No, and neither has his creator until recently. Oh, so, really? Uh, yeah, so although, I mean, I, w- I went in that night to meet a friend of mine, Andrew O'Neill, who's a comedian. Uh, and then th- there were you guys doing a live podcast from it um and although it's only a five minute walk from where I live I'd never been in it before I'd walked past
2: it but i would never been in it we believe it to be the greatest pub on earth (laughs) (laughs) extraordinary it holds a special place for us
3: yeah I did because I did kind of feel sorry for you in a way because like I felt like you'd come in there to go for a quiet drink and then we just finished the podcast and it was just like (laughs) the place was heaving (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah it was great Oh yeah, great. Well, here's hoping Rebus visits the Dagda. And so I'll just read this little extract from Black and Blue, and it also fe- features rum, which we were just talking about. So there we go. He went home by way of the Oxford Bar, a long detour, always worthwhile. The gantry and optics had a quietly hypnotic effect. The only possible explanation as to why the regulars could stand and stare at them for hours at a stretch. The barman waited for an order. "'Rebus did not have a usual drink these days. "'Variety, the spice of life and all that. "'Dark rum and a half of best. "'He hadn't touched dark rum in years. "'Didn't think of it as a young man's drink. "'Yet Alan Mitchinson had drunk it. "'I should have explained. "'Alan Mitchinson is the body at the start of the book. Um, "'A seaman's drink. "'Another reason to think he worked offshore. "'Rebus handed over money, "'downed the short in one sour swallow, "'rinsed his mouth with the beer, "'found himself finishing it too quickly. "'The barman turned with his change.' Make it a pint this time, John. And another rum? Jesus, no. Rebus rubbed his eyes, bummed a cigarette from his drowsy neighbour. He walked around the bar to use the telephone, put money in, and then couldn't think who to call. Forgotten the number? A drinker asked as Rebus got his coin back. Aye, he said. What's the Samaritans again? The drinker surprised him. He knew the number, Pat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's great.
3: was really good. I love that because it's really funny. And it's also... He's in the pub, and the pub is actually functioning... With the plot because he's using it to work out what happened to this guy, and the, the rum is kind of helping the train of thought. Yeah. So I think that's, it's just a really good example there. Good, good writing that. It. Good yeah. writing that. <laughs> whoever wrote that, yeah. whoever wrote that, you know. Give him the golden dagger. <laughs> I mean,
0: literally, I've literally, I've forgotten that section, but it's good. <laughs>
2: so Black and Blue by Ian Rankin enters the Moon Underwater Pub Library. But this pub. Unlike the Oxford Bar, also has a jukebox, Ian. And I know that music plays a big part in your writing as well. And it's quite an interesting thing to involve in novels, because obviously you can't really give the reader the feeling of music. But is it really important for you to have that as a sort of a, an unheard soundtrack?
0: Um... Yeah. I mean, I mean, the reason I use music a lot in the books is because I'm a frustrated rock star. I would much rather have been a rock star than a writer, but uh didn't work out that way. And a lot of crime writers are frustrated musicians, and a lot of us do use music. But music tells you quite a lot about the character. So if you if you open up a Rebus novel for the first time, and there's Rebus sitting there listening to John Martin or The Who or The Stones or something you get a sense of who he is, I think, from his musical choices. And it's one of the things that saddens me about modern life is you can walk into someone's home now and not be confronted by um, bookshelves full of books and racks full of LPs or CDs. They basically hand you their, 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 their Kindle and their iPhone and say, here's my record collection and my book collection. And you go, no, that's not, that's not right that's not right, um, and and so I do like I do like music. Music tells me a lot about people. Uh, you know, going back to when I was at school, you would be walking along the corridors of your high school, and if someone had a an LP by Wishbone Ash or Genesis under their arm, you had a connection straight away. And then later on, it was the Damned and uh, and the Sex Pistols. But you know, it kind it connected you to people. And it still does, and I do. I do love music, and I do listen to a lot of music. and um, And I would be very keen to to fit this jukebox out with at minimum forty records. I did. <laughs> um, I, I did Desert Island Discs on Radio Four, BBC Radio Four, many years ago. It was Sue Lawley's final week uh, as the presenter. And they said to me, okay, you need eight records. And they phoned me up and said, how are you doing? I said, I've got it down to 43. (laughs) And they said, no, you're only allowed eight. And so they gave me another week and they came back, how are you doing? I've got it down to 20. No, really, you can only have eight. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, was to try and get this whittled down to eight records.
2: Well, we're going to push you a little bit further than that because we're going to ask for one album that you would like to hear when you walked into a pub, if the pub had to have music, don't worry, you don't have to have music in your dream pub, but what, what would be your sort of perfect pub soundtrack album?
0: If I walked in and they were playing the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed, I would know I was in a good place. So, I mean, that's an album I first heard when I was 11 years old and I've been listening. So I've been listening to it now for 50 years. God, that must have blown your mind. You know what? I hated it when I first heard it. It Really? um, Yeah, my older sister, her boyfriend bought it. It cost them pound nineteen and 11 pence. And I remember that because there was a sticker on the front to that effect. And I was into T-Rex and Slade, you know, and I listened to this and thought, this is rubbish. Um, But it got beneath my skin. And when I arrived at Edinburgh University, aged 18, I went into a record shop and purchased it. Um, and it's been a part of my life ever since. And it's one of those records that when I, you know, if I ever move home and set up the hi-fi system, it's one of the first records on the turntable because it lets me know if I'm in a good place or not.
2: Well, it's a superb addition. Um, I, I, I grew up to be a quite a big Queen fan. And um, I remember first hearing the Miracle album advertised on TV when I was about seven and absolutely thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard. I mean, it is actually my least favourite Queen album, so that has sort of um, stuck around. Uh, You have one more choice. It doesn't have to be uh, drink-based. It's your wildcard choice. So just to remind everyone, on draft you've got Cromarty Rogue Wave, 5.7%, Dukas IPA, Tenants Council Beer in cans, and also cans of Guinness, You've got 18-year-old Highland Park and Edinburgh Gin. But what one final choice would you like for your pub? Crisps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, nice. Tell me more. It's got, it's got to
0: be crisps. Well, it's got to be, um, for me, it's got to be probably Walker's prawn Cocktail. Really? The, 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 the perfect accompaniment to any beverage, I would suggest. I like it. I like it. I feel very guilty about that because my wife's just been to Belfast and she brought me back Tato crisps which we also like and she did bring me back the prong cocktail but on a regular basis i cannot get access to those i can only get access to walkers uh and it's the crisp of champions i think
3: what is the great oh, scottish crisp brand um, Mac- mackey's
0: Yes, you get Mackie's Haggis flavour.
2: They're really good. Mackie's Pickled Onion played a much bigger part in my (laughs) Edinburgh Festival this year than I was (laughs) intending. Every time I moved room in my flat, just pacing around, there was a bag of Mackie's Pickled Onion (laughs) that I would just sort of absentmindedly eat from. They are delicious. I used to love the Haggis ones. Tato's Pickled Onion are are superb as well. Mm. I'm a big fan of Tato's Bacon. Huh. Crisps,
3: but there's. A, I just was followed on Instagram by. Uh, I want to get. It. I think it's Pints and Crisps, It's an Instagram account of just pairing crisps with with different beers. It's very very much up my up my street there.
0: But I'm, am I am I the only one of the three of us who's actually been to Tato World in Ireland really? the theme park? <laughs> yeah,
3: I would have No, yeah. Well, wow, what was Tato World like?
0: It was amazing. It's got a very big old fashioned roller coaster. You can visit the the crisp factory. Uh, they sell you crisps. There's all kinds of water features. There's there's, a, there's animatronic dinosaurs. <laughs> it's it's basically got everything you need.
2: I, of what you've just said, I was only expecting crisps.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> it sounds like a really elaborate tax dodge. It's like <laughs> that <taintos> potatoes. <laughs> That's
2: great, folks. We now leave the Johnny Come Flyby Nightlies and enter into a special choice just for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, it will be Ian Rankin's Dream Pub Companion, and if you want to support this pub on Patreon, head to MoonUnderPod.com and subscribe for but six pounds a month, uh, and that gives you early access to live tickets, ad-free episodes and also the bonus podcast behind the cellar door. But we will see you back if you choose not to do that, which is entirely within your rights. We'll see you back very shortly.
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: you're barred well we are now returned to our Johnny Come Flybe Nightlies. we've we've heard all about Ian Rankin's Dream Pub companion you know what to do if you want to hear it too Uh, but we have some small matters of admin to attend to before we let Ian return to the other realm firstly you've you've mentioned in passing a couple of things you would like to not be in your pub, but what one thing are you going to bar from this place?
0: Um, this is a very Scots answer. Uh, the, there was a famous pub sign. Uh, somebody put it up on Twitter or somewhere years ago. and just a chalkboard outside a bar in Glasgow, and it said, no football colours, uh, no wee fuds. Now, I've got to explain to you, a wee fud, F-U-D. A wee fud is just a, a wee guy who's looking for trouble, all right? So he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a troublesome um, scallywag. And the thing I would ban from my pub would be wee fuds. Oh, I mean, superb. No, no room for those. <laughs> and they tend, be, they tend to be, you know, wee guys with a chip on the shoulder and they're, they're quick to ignite um, and they're daft. They, they'll believe in any conspiracy theory, theory you want to throw at them. And we call them wee fuds.
2: That's a great thing Funt to bar, that, that person who's just got that energy... Yeah, that you don't want to be anywhere around, just because you know it's not going to end well for someone.
3: What's the What's the difference between a fud and a bam pot?
0: Oh, not much, not okay. much. I would say. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, ba- yeah, bam pots are possibly. I mean, they're 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 thick. Bam pots are thick. We fuds might not be necessarily thick, um, but but they will be. They they, they they won't be pleasant people to be around.
2: So would would begby be an example of a the ultimate sort of wee FUD.
0: Absolutely. He'd be, well, he's a Bampot. He's definitely a Bampot. Is he a wee FUD or not? I don't know. He's possibly got a bit too much charisma to be a wee FUD. <laughs> yeah. This is great. Nobody expected to get a linguistics <laughs> lesson. No, I love <laughs> it. Uh, while they were doing this pub. It's really good. No wee yeah. FUDs. Hurry
2: up, please. It's time. We do need uh, a name for this place so that you can uh, have it signed, sealed and delivered to you to take with wherever you need it the most. What are you going to call this, pub? Um uh,
0: Probably call it the Caledonian anti-syzygy.
2: Right, we're going to need another linguistics lesson. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you how to spell that.
0: Yeah, so John, so Caledonian you're okay with, right? You yeah. You can spell Caledonian. Anti-syzygy is A-N-T-I-S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Yeah. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. And it's a thing I was taught when I was at university. It's like it's being where being where extremes meet. It's something you find in a lot of Scottish literature. You find a kind of combination of, of, of extreme elements. So you, a meeting of extreme elements. It's Jekyll and Hyde and stuff like that. It's the ability for one person to contain within them um, disparate, very disparate elements. The Caledonian anti-syzygy. Uh, and I just think if I called it that then I wouldn't be bothered too much by people trying to text me (laughs) uh, because nobody would know how to say it, pronounce it or spell it. So I could sit happily without anybody trying to make bookings by email or text because nobody would have a clue how to get to or refer to the Caledonian anti-souzygy.
2: Also, it sort of acts as its own doorman,
0: doesn't it? Just yeah, a certain kind of person is not going to come into that bar. Yeah, <laughs> you get a lot of Scrabble fans. You won't get you won't get too many wee fuds coming in. No. no.
2: <laughs> well, we thank you so much for your time in creating this fantastic pub. It's a half, <laughs> very similar in design to the Oxford Bar, and it contains Cromarty Rogue Wave, Duke's IPA, Tenants Council beer in cans. Guinness in cans, Highland Park 18-year-old and Edinburgh gin. It's got Let It Bleed on the jukebox, if indeed it has a jukebox, and Walker's Prawn Cocktail Crisps, the champion crisp. No wee fuds are allowed in the Caledonian anti syzygy (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, fare thee well, and uh, best of luck with the next book, and uh, we can't wait to, to hear more about Rebus, more about Edinburgh, and perhaps maybe he's going to go to the Dagda we just don't know
0: yeah and I'm terrified now because you know writers like uh, football players buying a pub could be could spell disaster for me are you buying a pub I'm buying your pub I'm buying the Caledonian anti-syzygy oh
2: fantastic Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And on Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen.
3: Help, I Sexted My Boss live is showing everywhere
2: and everyone's welcome. Go to sexedmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexedmyboss.com slash cinema.